We've forgotten Joseph Warren. The American Revolution had a cast of characters that included many great men and women for many reasons. George Washington for his humility and leadership, Thomas Jefferson for his diplomacy and authorship of the Declaration of Independence, Ben Franklin for being an overall genius, Alexander Hamilton for being a great rapper, and John Hancock for having a big signature. I could name dozens more, but there will be one name that is too often excluded when thinking of those vital to the creation of the United States. It turns out that a stray musket ball may have the most profound effect on who we remember and who we forget when history is written. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 18, The Forgotten Father. From the outset, Britain appeared to be doing quite well after the Seven Years' War. They had handily defeated the French and now had a stranglehold on New World markets. It turned out that the sun never setting on your empire was incredibly good for business. However, appearances were often much different than reality. In the wake of the Seven Years' War, which North American colonists referred to as the French and Indian War, the colonists found themselves without a common enemy. Remember, nothing makes you respect your local authority more than when there's a boogeyman at the city gates. So without the threat of a French invasion, and with some more breathing room on the frontier, colonists began focusing their attention on their royal masters, who had plenty of problems of their own. The first was that the British crown was short on cash. The Seven Years' War had only ended when it did because Britain had been just a little less broke than France because their royal banking system was kind of a mess. And being short on cash was a problem. It turns out that a vast international empire had fairly high upkeep costs. At first, the British were much more interested in their sugar-rich island colonies in the Caribbean, not only because they were three times wealthier than the entirety of the American mainland, but because they were much easier to tax because of their prominent naval presence in the region. But the British were in such dire straits financially that they decided to dip into the North American colonists' pockets as well. The British saw their continental colonies as owing the crown for protecting them during the Seven Years' War, so little by little they began taxing goods in the colonies. But the colonies had largely been left to manage themselves for the past century, and they had gotten used to running the colonies by themselves, and thus did not take it well when Westminster started interfering in their day-to-day -day affairs. Additionally, the practice of mercantilism sought to prohibit local manufacture. In their minds, the colonies were supposed to provide raw material for existing companies, not create competition for them. As you can imagine, this upset many entrepreneurs in the American cities. And lastly, ever since the signing of the Magna Carta, British subjects got to have at least a say in what the authorities did. The American colonists did not, and no taxation without representation sure had a nice ring to it. All of these factors built upon each other and blended into a perfect recipe for revolution. Joseph Warren finished off his pipe at the Green Dragon Tavern. He had seen two bad cases of gangrene, performed an emergency surgery, and watched a man die of dysentery today. So he desperately just wanted to let his powdered wig down. Across the table from him, Sam Adams would not shut up about the new tax giving the East India Company essentially a monopoly over the sale of tea in the colonies. 
And Joseph Warren knew that colonists liked only one thing more than beer, and that was tea. But boy, could Sam Adams rant. Deep down, Joseph preferred his cousin John. Right when Sam Adams was really sticking it to a hypothetical British tax collector, Hercules Mulligan sat down next to them at the table. Hercules was one of the newest members of the Sons of Liberty, trigger-happy and brash, and probably tired of being a tailor. He was eager to prove himself. He and Adams would be like fire and whale oil with each other. Just then, Benjamin Rush sat down at the table, throwing his trifold hat down and motioning to the bartender. Rush was a physician like Warren, and the two got along quite well. He said that Hancock was on his way, and said that he mentioned something about a plan to end this tea tax once and for all. The Sons of Liberty had meetings like this quite frequently in the past few years, but something felt different ever since the Boston Massacre, in which Warren actually performed the autopsies and wrote the damning reports of the Redcoats responsible. As they say, never let a good tragedy go to waste. Joseph Warren and the other Sons of Liberty did not intend to. A storm was brewing in the colonies. Of all the Sons of Liberty, Joseph Warren seemed to have the most revolutionary blood in his veins. He was a descendant of the uncle of William the Conqueror. His great-great-grandfather was one of the early English dissenters to come to the New World, who was also among the first signers of the Mayflower Compact. His DNA seemed to have revolution etched into it. He attended Harvard University to study medicine and Latin, graduating in 1759. He joined the Freemasons in college, eventually becoming the Grand Master of Boston's Masonic Lodge. Warren was incredibly political and very critical of royal rule. He wrote several incendiary articles that were published in local newspapers under the pseudonym A True Patriot. Royal officials desperately tried to ascertain the identity of a true patriot, but to no avail. They eventually even threatened to put the newspaper publishers on trial, but every local jury refused to indict them. Joseph Warren was also a fairly talented musician, writing several patriotic songs set to popular British tunes. And all of this while being one of the most prominent doctors in all of Boston. In December of 1773, Samuel Adams held a meeting at Faneuil Hall to protest the Tea Act. 7,000 people showed up. The mob eventually moved to the harbor, where roughly 100 people, some dressed as Mohawk Indians, boarded several British East India Company vessels. They threw hundreds of crates of imported tea overboard into the Boston Harbor. Adjusted for today's dollars, the event cost the British more than $4 million, a pretty expensive tea party. We don't know if Joseph Warren participated in the Boston Tea Party, but we know sure as hell that he publicized and defended it from the get-go. Warren gave spirited speeches in town squares and other public places, often deliberately in front of occupying Redcoat soldiers. In 1775, he was elected to lead the newly founded Massachusetts Provincial Congress, the highest position in the revolutionary government. In addition, he used his practice as a physician to create an intricate spy network. His agents would come to him with ailments, in quotes, and would report to him with various information like updates about British supply lines, to movements of redcoat battalions, to prominent revolutionaries with targets on their back. Joseph Warren then reported that intel to the Sons of Liberty, 
but Warren had one confidential informant so high up in the British chain of command that he needed to wait for the opportune moment to utilize them. General Thomas Gage was the current mayor of Boston, and his actions against colonial unrest had been swift and severe. He wrote to his superiors that he was worried about the spreading of democracy in the colonies, so he was ready to put down this petty rebellion once and for all. But his wife, Margaret Gage, a New Jersey-born aristocrat, was not. And rumor has it, she was very, very close to our friend Joseph Warren. She was quietly sympathetic to the Patriot cause and offered to leak any information she had when Warren needed it. When her husband was planning the disarmament of the colonial forces and planning to seize Hancock and Adams, Margaret Gage offered the British strategy to Joseph Warren. Warren was a leader in the Committee of Safety, a network of colonists who updated each other on the movement of British troops. He sent word to Concord, where there was a storehouse of weapons and ammunition. Paul Revere and Joseph Warren created a signal to be used by the Committee of Safety, the signal that most American children learn in grade school, one if by land, two if by sea. The stage was set, and Warren was ready to play his part. On April 18, 1775, Joseph Warren was told that tonight was the night. He sent out Paul Revere and William Dawes, who did basically the same thing as Revere but didn't have a famous song written about him, so he's largely forgotten. He sent them to warn Sam Adams and John Hancock in Lexington of the coming British forces. They worked like a virus, spreading the warning across the countryside to people who in turn spread the information even further. They had to avoid British checkpoints, and at several points had to leave the roads and even jump fences. They did not actually yell, the British are coming, the British are coming. They went door to door and whispered that the regulars were on their way, and their work paid off. By the time the British regulars reached Concord, they found that almost all of the military supplies had already been moved. And by the time they reached Lexington, they found hundreds of Minutemen waiting for them, with more arriving every minute. They were led by John Parker, a veteran of the French and Indian War, who, as the sun was rising behind the six columns of British redcoats coming up the road, said to his men, Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. We don't know who fired the first shot. Neither side was given orders to, and neither side really had an incentive to do so either. Many eyewitnesses from both sides later wrote in their personal journal that the other side fired the first shot. Many historians think that the initial shot that started the conflict was actually an accidental discharge. Yep, the shot heard round the world was probably an accident. Suddenly, both sides found themselves firing upon the other. The Battle of Lexington and Concord was hardly a battle. It was more of a skirmish. The British regulars, seeing no real value of the fight, turned back and began the march back to Boston. Minutemen from throughout the countryside began showing up in droves and taking potshots at the British as they retreated. It's estimated that many of the men of the British regulars had never even seen combat before, and many broke rank, retreating as fast as they could back to Boston, while leaving their wounded behind. I know this episode is mainly about Joseph Warren, but I would be remiss if I left out this strange little fact. During the Battle of Lexington and Concord, 
on the 16-mile road back to Boston, a local mentally ill man by the name of Elias Brown wandered through the battle, successfully selling hard cider to forces on both sides of the conflict. Frankly, I find that image delightful. Church bells rang out throughout the countryside, and more and more American militiamen swarmed the road back to Boston. Joseph Warren was among them. He fearlessly led a group of Minutemen in assailing the Redcoats' flanks. Suddenly, a part of his powdered wig exploded, and a horrific ringing filled his right ear. A musket ball had flown by, merely inches from killing him. The Continental forces surrounded Boston and began a siege, preventing movement of British troops around the greater Boston area. Margaret Gage was quietly sent back home to England. John Adams rode from Lexington towards Boston after the battle, passing the bloodstains and grave markers. He lamented that the die was cast, that they had crossed the Rubicon. Joseph Warren returned to his fiancée and mother to rest for a few days. Upon seeing Joseph's tattered wig, his mother broke into tears, begging him to never risk his life again. He replied by saying, Where danger is, dear mother, there must your son be also. Now is no time for any of America's children to shrink from any hazard. I will set her free or die. Joseph returned to the front where he organized the siege of Boston and planned with rebel leaders on what they believed would happen next. Joseph Warren was commissioned as a major general on June 14th and continued to monitor British troop movements with his spy network. He received intel in mid-June that the British would be attempting to break the siege of Boston soon. Their planned location, Bunker Hill. With this information, Joseph Warren and General Prescott began fortifying their position there. They strengthened the redoubt, which is basically a fort made of only earthworks, piles of dirt. General Gage readied his men for attack and was told that the colonists had fortified their position even further throughout the night. When General Howe, another British general, saw what the colonists had accomplished that night, he reportedly said, The colonists have done more in one night than my troops have done in an entire month. Despite the colonists' well-fortified positions, the British attack continued as planned. Joseph Warren ran up towards colonial officers with a few dozen men to aid in the defending of Bunker Hill. Warren was a sight for sore eyes for General Prescott and General Putnam. Warren outranked them, although his rank had not technically taken effect yet. Both generals handed over command to Warren, but he declined, saying that they were more practiced in the art of warfare. Both generals insisted, knowing that many of the colonists would rally behind their young leader. But Warren was adamant, saying he would fight as a private and simply asked where the most heavy fighting would be. General Putnam pointed to the redoubt on the nearby Breed's Hill, closer to where the British would most likely land. Joseph Warren ran to the fortifications and began preparing for the battle. Warren looked over the colonists' supplies and saw how little ammunition they actually had, and most of the ammunition was of the crude, homemade variety. Still, Warren kept morale up. They would need to make every shot count. The orders were given to not fire until they saw the whites of their enemy's eyes. The fires from the burning Charlestown billowed smoke across the Boston Bay, 
creating an almost surreal sight from the hill. A few of the men at Breed's Hill were armed with Kentucky long rifles that fired bullets that were much more accurate at a distance than the standard smoothbore muskets. These men began sniping British officers as they approached the hill. This was seen as almost dishonorable at the time, but it was very effective. The colonial militia created a system where they would alternate between firing and reloading to make sure the Redcoats never had an opportunity to make a bayonet charge. Joseph Warren timed the reloads and gave each order to fire once the British soldiers were incredibly close. Massive gashes were torn in their ranks, and the first wave of British troops were repelled with relative ease. The next wave focused on Bunker Hill, and Warren did his best to dissuade his men from firing on redcoats that were too far away. Every missed shot felt like a casualty. The second wave was eventually repelled as well, and the Minutemen cheered. Joseph Warren was quoted as saying, These fellows say we won't fight. By heaven, I hope I shall die up to my knees in blood. They were successfully fending off the most advanced fighting force in the world. But the third wave was on its way, this time with even more British grenadiers and Royal Marines approaching from multiple sides. The colonists were down to their homemade ammunition that was far less accurate and often jammed their muskets. Smoke from their firearms enveloped the battlefield. Eventually, they were beginning to run out of even their homemade ammunition. The British continued to send line after line of redcoats, some of them now having to climb bodies on their way up. Joseph Warren fired his last shot. There was no ammunition left. The tide of the battle immediately changed when the British finally set up their cannons armed with grape shot, essentially shotgun rounds for artillery. The British six-pound guns unloaded on Breed's Hill with grape shot, turning men into flying chunks of flesh. The morale of the colonists broke, and the men of Breed's Hill began retreating to the fortifications of Bunker Hill, whose inhabitants were also out of ammunition and also beginning to retreat. Joseph Warren rallied his men for the coming bayonet charge. He knew that if he broke rank and ran too, every one of the retreating men would be gunned down before they could escape. A group had to stay back to ensure their safe retreat. Joseph Warren turned towards the British and began ordering his few men left to hold their ground when the back of his head exploded. His men watched in horror as their charismatic leader fell into the mud. The colonial forces began a full-scale retreat, but Warren had bought them just enough time to get out and even save many of the wounded. The British suffered a costly victory. They had a much higher casualty rate than the colonists, especially among their officers. Nathaniel Green, a future leader in the Continental Army, stated later that he would sell the British a hill at that price any day. The Battle of Bunker Hill which should more accurately be called the Battle of Breed's Hill, legitimized the colonial forces and gave them hope that this was a war that they could win. General Gage reportedly tried to justify the cost of the battle by saying that the death of Joseph Warren alone was worth that of 500 men. When the British took the redoubt where Warren's body lay, an officer recognized him and probably out of fury began to bayonet him repeatedly until he was stabbed beyond recognition. When that officer was later captured, he stated that he stuffed the scoundrel with another rebel into one hole, and there he and his seditious principles may remain. 
Ten months after the Battle of Bunker Hill, Paul Revere and two of Warren's brothers searched the readout in an attempt to find Joseph's body. Sure enough, they found two bodies in a shallow grave, and Paul Revere identified Joseph Warren by an artificial tooth that he himself had placed in his friend's jaw years ago. He was taken to be buried at Forest Hill Cemetery. The death of Joseph Warren was devastating to the colonists, but he became a martyr for the cause of the revolution. When he had told his mother that he would set America free or die, it turned out that both statements were true. Because of that stray musket ball, Joseph Warren's young life was cut short. He didn't get to sign the Declaration of Independence. He didn't get to marry his fiancée. He didn't get to cross the Delaware with Washington. He didn't get to melt down the statue of King George into ammunition with Hercules Mulligan. He didn't get to participate in the government under the Articles of Confederation. He didn't get to participate in the new government under the new Constitution. He didn't get to help shape the fledgling United States of America. He didn't because of a stray musket ball in 1775. Meanwhile, George Washington had two horses shot out from underneath him and had to constantly take his coat to the tailor to fix all of the bullet holes in it. If those musket balls had been aimed a little better, or if the wind was just a little different at the time, then Washington could have gone down and Warren could have survived. Hell, Warren could have been the first president of the United States instead. We would be celebrating President's Day in June for Warren's birthday, and we could visit the Warren Monument in Warren, D.C., and make up stories about how Joseph Warren couldn't tell a lie. But instead, we've forgotten Joseph Warren, all because of a stray musket ball. We often neglect to think about the role that luck plays in history, yet it may play the biggest role of all. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton. If you like the podcast, follow Historium on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I've made a Patreon for Historium, so if you think the show is worth just a dollar per episode, consider donating there. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>